Welcome to LilyPod episode 82, Preventing Toxic Interactions. Jeff and Kathy Teichert, bringing you another episode of LilyPod, a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches, authors of the Amazon bestseller Intentional Courtship, and members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. Hello, LilyPod listeners, and welcome to another edition of LilyPod. Today, we want to talk about preventing toxic interactions. And toxic is a word that gets thrown around a lot in the mid-singles community, and we rarely apply it to ourselves. We generally apply it to a partner, and we see other people as toxic, but it's It's something we don't perceive very often in ourselves and may not even realize how we are contributing to a toxic interaction. Well, I want to hearken back to a TV show I saw back in the 80s when I was a teenager. And Geraldo Rivera uh, had invited some members of the Ku Klux Klan on his show and said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think that applies to toxic interactions and behaviors, uh, both within marriage and within dating relationships. I believe that understanding or sunlight, uh, where we can see things closer to how they really are, uh, can do a lot to disinfect us from the toxins the emotional toxins that sometimes plague our relationships. And so we want to talk about three areas where this is important, self-confronting, de-escalation, and avoiding transference. So um, Kathy, what do you think about self-confronting and why that matters? Well, I think that's bringing sunlight to our own behaviors where we have the most power and control. Right. Yeah, and, and I think self-confronting is really important. I, I think a lot of mid-singles, a lot of divorced people specifically, make the mistake, and, and it's an honest mistake. I mean, it's, well, I don't know if it's an honest mistake, but it's an understandable one. When they look at their partner as the source of all the trouble and think, well, I could have had a good relationship or a good marriage if I had married someone that wasn't a narcissist or, you know, come up with any other adjective you'd like to find. There's a couple of problems with that. One of those is uh, when you are externalizing blame, when you are placing blame on someone outside yourself as as justified as that may be, you're allowing that other person to hold you hostage. And the second reason, which is related, is uh, focusing on someone else, confessing someone else's sins is not really helping you to get better at doing relationships. And the statistics on second and third marriages, uh, you know, the success rate goes down with each subsequent marriage. And so I think it's, it's really important to take a good look at ourselves uh, as we move forward in life. Well, and to, to do so, I think it's important to ask ourselves questions such as, do I thrive off of toxic energy. Right. Do I get something from it somehow? Do I feed it? Right. You know, I've, I've had that experience even in in our marriage there. I remember a Saturday one time when I became really frustrated with Kathy and, um, 
you know, we called a timeout and I took a drive, a uh, long drive. And I just, I, I realized that I was disrupted, that I was not in my shalom. And as I was able to get some space and get calmer, I specifically asked myself, okay, why did Kathy react the way she did? Why did it bother me as much as it did? And it, it's not that I didn't think Kathy had a role in, you know, the misunderstanding we had. It, it was more that I started to own my own part in it and to understand that there were things I could have done better to avoid um, escalating something in the first place. And I think when we have had a situation escalate, it's important to be honest with ourselves and be willing to be at least partially, if not fully, um, uh, wrong in the situation, to be able to look and see how we could have done things better, even if the other person did things that we don't like. Exactly. And, you know, <clears throat> you had mentioned to me that you've even witnessed when people are impressed with the toxic behavior in another person. Oh, yeah. That ultimately we would hate to have directed towards us, but we might think it's funny in the moment. Well, I had a, a, a partner who <clears throat> frequently, um, she was a nurse and she would frequently come, uh, you know, come home from work or we would be together some evening after she had worked and she would talk about a surgeon that she did work for, um, the way he would sort of rip somebody up one side and down the other for some mistake in the operating room or, uh, and she would do that with a you could tell the way she talked that she was really impressed with this guy dressing down the ER nurse or sorry, the uh, operating room nurses and so forth. And so, like she admired that. Behavior. She admired that. And she thought it was cool. And yeah, I'm sure we can all think of a time in our lives when we might have something comparable, like where we thought somebody was really awesome because they really ripped someone a new you know, a new one. Right. Well, and yeah, that was an expression she sometimes used actually. But the, the funny thing about this, it's not funny, but you know, strange thing about this was she had a previous husband who she had left because he got angry at her frequently and blamed her for stuff exactly like this surgeon would do to people uh, under his supervision. And so I think, you know, there may have been a lack of sort of self-awareness there. Is this something I really want to be impressed with about someone that they, you know, flare up in anger and righteous indignation against someone? You know, that that isn't, that kind of anger and dressing someone down and all of that is toxic. And who, who of us really wants to be on the other end of that? I mean, I know if you're a boss at, at your place of employment or a business owner and you have employees or whatever, there's going to be times when you have to correct something they've done. Uh, but I think before you do, you should always try to put yourself in the other person's shoes uh, and that could be with parenting too. I mean, we always sure. have to correct with our children. That's part of parenting. And to sometimes be able to just step back into our younger selves. Okay. How would I want to receive this? Right. Yeah. So self-confronting is really important. And, and I, the first principle I would suggest in terms of self-confronting, the, the core of the thing we need to remember is that we have to be willing to see our own part in any toxic interaction. 
And I think that's where personal change is going to begin. It's that sunlight, the, mm -hmm. the opportunity to, to look and second guess our own thoughts on, and our own actions. Yeah. And, you know, I was in a, you know, in a relationship where there was a lot of toxic interaction happening and there was only a handful of times that I can honestly say that I walked away and I didn't engage and I didn't interact with that toxicity and I didn't contribute to it. Like it was very rare that I didn't have some kind of part in what went wrong. Right. Uh, you know, also in self-confronting, it's important to know what, you know, another person's buttons are. If we know that, to not go pressing them off on purpose. Right. Or even, even more important, if we're trying to avoid toxic interaction, we do our best to be sensitive and actually go out of our way to try and avoid pushing those buttons. It's not because we're, we're fearful, but because we care about them. Yeah, we're not suggesting you walk around on eggshells or anything like that. Uh, I remember a talk that uh, Elder Holland gave. I believe he was president of BYU at the time, but he talked about how uh, he said, I don't know all of my wife's buttons to push, but I know most of them. And he said, if I intentionally do those things to hurt her, that would be enough to damn my miserable soul to hell. That's a great <laughs> quote. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, I think it is tempting when you're triggered yourself to start pressing the other person's buttons to say things that you know are going to get at them. And yet that's not the way to run a relationship. Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. And valor is something we want, we want to develop uh, in the, the people that we talk to and teach and coach and so on. You know, to finish up this first uh, portion of preventing toxic interactions, the self-confronting, I just want to refer back to episode 24, Wisdom from Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. There was a point at which we asked her, what should we be looking for in a partner if we've been in relationships before that didn't work, if we've gone through divorce, if we've had bad breakups and we want to be successful? She said the number one quality we're looking for is someone who can self-confront. Yeah, and interestingly, um, I reposted a quote from a, that a friend had quoted on his Facebook page uh, from Dr. Greg Baer, and he said the number one thing he would be looking uh, uh, for in a partner uh, if he weren't married was, I believe, someone that was willing to admit they're wrong. Which is similar. Which is a very related idea, if not the same idea. Right. Someone who can look inside, see themselves, and be willing to make positive changes and be able to grow with us. Because now, also we need to show up and be that person, obviously. Right. I'm going to suggest that the reason why that is hard, even though I think deep down we all know that we, that we would be better off doing that, is that our survival instinct makes it so our brain would rather be right than be happy. And there is a certain... Um, comfort that then comes with that kind of assertiveness and even willful blindness to our own, uh, to our own flaws. But remember that as natural as it may be, the natural man is an enemy to God. And what did, you know, what did God tell Ether if, or the brother of Jared, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. And it's, it's hard to discover our own weakness, but by discovering it, again, the sunlight enters in and kind of helps to purge that toxic energy from our spirits. And 
helps restore our shalom. Another point I want to really emphasize on this is that admitting that you were wrong or that you made a mistake doesn't have to inflict shame on you. Uh, In fact, it's better if it does not, because we don't think that blame or shame, blame pointing at the other person, shame pointing at us, right? Are neither of them are useful concepts, right? Neither of them are helpful to the relationship or to our own spirits, right? Yeah, and so admitting that, hey, I made a mistake. I, I like the words of Maya Angelou, and I actually quoted these in Intentional Courtship, our book. She said. Uh, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. And yeah, I love that quote. I remember when I read, I think it's from the caged bird book, right? Yeah. The caged bird sings yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I remember when I read that, how profound that wisdom is. Right. Because it's saying you don't have to feel shame for not acting according to knowledge you didn't have. And and I think if, you know, you may have been raised in an atmosphere where there was a lot of toxicity and you may be used to it and you may even feel it's normal. And yet maybe you had a marriage that included a lot of it and felt miserable. Well, what we're trying to, to help you do, uh, whatever your situation is, is to look for those toxic interactions and figure out how to come back to peace uh, before the situation escalates. Right. And sometimes we can prevent toxic moments in the first place with our own behavior. And I do think that leads into the de-escalation, which is our second um, part of preventing toxic interactions. Uh, because it, we're ultimately going to de-escalate a situation when we self-confront and, uh, which is Dr. Jennifer Finlayson's five, five's uh, big focus um, for finding, you know, the right partner and, and to be able to admit we're, we're wrong, which is Dr. Greg Bears. And I believe that's episode 59, our interview with him. But yeah, yeah. so f- um, being able to do those two things, self-confront and admit when we're wrong, really does lead to de-escalation of the situation. And I know when either one of us choose to take a little more responsibility for ourselves and come back to communicate with each other, it softens things. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we've quoted it a lot of times, but the Gottmans, John and Julie Gottman did research where they showed that whenever either person discussing a relationship problem has a heartbeat that escalates beyond 100 beats per minute, there is literally a 0% chance that they're going to solve the problem uh, in that conversation. And so what we recommend and what has worked well for us is if it is, you know, you're going to try first to prevent it from escalating, but if it's already escalated and you, and you know that, you know that you are triggered or, or believe strongly that your partner is triggered then you have a policy that that kicks in automatically where you call timeout, you you end that discussion immediately without parting shots or last words, and then you you agree implicitly to come back together as soon as you're both calm and finish the discussion. And we found that we can often resolve things in a few minutes when we're both calm that we could have fought all night about if we continued pouring fuel on that fire and cause all sorts of damage in the meantime. Right. And that's one of the agreements that is my very favorite about our marriage. Right. Uh, Something that we both came to conclusions based on previous relationships where we had a lot of toxic interaction and we wanted to do it better. And so this information is pretty golden, actually. I think it's the best way to divorce proof of marriage, honestly, is to be able to do timeouts well. Right. And and have this attitude in the marriage, in the relationship, that I'm responsible for my emotional well-being. Right. And you aren't. Right. 
I just need, the only thing I need from you is for you to cooperate with what I know I need for myself, which might sometimes be a timeout. It might sometimes mean we stop talking right now so that I can go get calm. Right. And, and she may be triggered when I'm still calm or vice versa. But if, if one partner is flooded, even if, if your partner's flooded and you're not, and you think I could go on, it's still a mistake to go on when one of you is flooded. Oh yeah. I mean, that's like, Hey, be toxic to me right now. Right. <laughs> Please give me your worst. You know, like why not give them time, you know, like, well, and, and if, <laughs> if you're calm and you're thinking straight and your partner is just triggered, there's a whole bunch of crazy dynamics that can happen. For one thing, you may be out arguing that other person because uh, you're calm and you're thinking more clearly. You're in a, your adult mind and they're in their child mind. Right. And so it's like, a you know, a, a 30, 40 year old something arguing with a 10 year old that's having a tantrum. And, and the problem with that is if you're the calm one, well, you, your partner is going to dislike everything you say as reasonable as it may, as it may be because they're flooded and their, their, uh, inner child as Kathy just put it is come up to the surface. Well, and let's, let's be truthful. I think most of us, if we engage too long with someone who is in a childlike state, someone who's, you know, reverted to that kind of mentality because they're so emotionally flooded, they can't function as an adult. It doesn't make them immature. It just means they are in a bad place at that moment. Right. Right. And it literally can take as little as 20 minutes when we catch it early enough to be able to self-confront and self-soothe and be able to, you know, find our peace. If we get out of the space of the whatever's triggering us, it, we can also, I think we can calm down faster. Right. Um, you know, when we, I think whenever we're within six feet of a person, we take on some of that energy that they have. And so if that's part of the, the problem, when we remove ourselves, uh, first of all, that it, you know, it puts us back into our own energy. And then second of all, when we move, we sometimes forget what's bothering us. Right. And in fact, have you ever walked to a room, to another room and forgot what you went there for? Well, that's all because- the time. That's because literally our brains are wired that when we move, we switch gears in our brains too. Right. So I often go on walks. I really like to go on walks when I'm upset. I, it helps me a lot. You know, an, another little technique I, I want to share, and, and Kathy and I use this one too. If the argument or, argument or discussion has gotten a little elevated, but it's not terribly out of control yet, uh, but you notice that you're starting to interrupt each other or to talk louder or to talk faster. Either person can say, slow down and say it slowly. And then both of you take a deep breath and intentionally start taking turns talking. And I think that that strategy can help sort of headed off at the pass so you don't get to the point where you need a timeout. Um, if you have gotten to that point, there's nothing nothing shameful about taking a timeout. It's the responsible thing to do. Absolutely. And I think the important thing about it is to know yourself, to be able to tell when you're disrupted, and then to have that policy that just sort of kicks in Kind of like when we tell our kids, you know, to if they're offered drugs, they need to know what they're going to say before it ever happens so that they don't have to think through it when they're under the, the pressure. It's of, like making a decision of a, in advance of the stressor. Right. And that can apply in a whole lot of situations. We, we encourage intentional agreements. Um, another one could be, you know, we, we've all come from different relationships, different traditions. We've all been burned by different things. Uh, so 
one way of, of understanding this is, hey, everybody comes from a different family culture and has a different idea about what's right and wrong, what's good. I mean, we have some things in common, but, but everybody comes from a little different background. And so let's suppose that I was dating someone, I was single and dating someone, and uh, we haven't had a conversation about uh, being exclusive, but I kind of read that into uh, the situation because we were kissing. And I could immediately say, well, you know, I see my partner with somebody else one evening and I think, uh, this person's a cheater. They're a player. You know, I don't want anything to do with this. And you know what? It could be that they just understood the relationship in a different way. Or so, they're out with their brother or sister. Right. So this is a good opportunity. You don't have to go up and confront them right then, but you can go home and think it over and then talk to them the next time you have an opportunity and say, look, I saw you out with so-and-so. I thought maybe we were uh, trying to be exclusive. And so I guess we need to uh, have some, some conversation and get clear on what we really are to each other. And, and then what the boundaries are going to be. If you are exclusive, what does that mean? Do you not go out with, you know, if you're a woman, do you not go out with your guy friends uh, in a group or, or individually, you know, even if those are platonic relationships? Well, that's something that has to be discussed. And, and then you as have- As unromantic as that might seem. Right. And then you have very intentional agreements and you got to keep those agreements when you make them. You, you, you've got to make sure that when you're having those discussions, whatever agreements you make uh, on these sensitive issues, uh, you're, you're willing to abide by them. Well, yeah. And something else I, about timeouts, which is one of our agreements, would be the willingness to come back together and calmly discuss uh, the issue that that started it. And timeouts don't work without that, by the way. It, I, well, no, convinced. they don't, because whoever really wants to pursue the conversation has to trust that the conversation is still going to happen. Right. And uh, especially with an intimate partner, a family member, or a good friend, any relationship we care about that we have the power to smooth over, it's important that we do so, that we be brave and and be able to work through the hard things. Right. You know, one, one time I'll share a little story, and I believe this is an intentional courtship also. But uh, when Kathy and I were considering dating for marriage, uh, shortly before we, we finally decided to, to do that, um, Kathy had come with me to a, f uh, a funeral service for a good friend uh, of mine. And later on that evening, we were discussing uh, when we had broken up previously. A year before, and like we, more than a year before. Yeah. And we had never really had a breakup conversation. Oh, yes, we, we did. We just well, hadn't discussed the aftermath of it. Like, I mean... You're making it sound like I ghosted you. I did not. No, I absolutely didn't, did you not. You didn't ghost me, but we never really sat down and expressed how we both felt about breaking up and and the assumptions we made on each side about no. how we interacted about it. I just want to make sure and, that the audience understands we didn't yeah, no, not the, have a conversation. There was a conversation. It just, you know, at the time I was so triggered that I couldn't really have that conversation. And we didn't handle it well. And, and I mean, that's fine. That's in our past. But I think a lot of those feelings, because we had never resolved it, were just sort of coming back. And as we talked about our breakup and some of the misunderstandings and the jealousies and the various things that happened, well, I think we were both um, triggered several times that evening. And 
so as we were both triggered and, and found ourselves getting frustrated with each other, and really these were over things that had happened many months ago, uh, but several times that evening, I remember Kathy saying, you know, this is going in a bad direction. Uh, we need to, to pray together uh, and shift it or, or we should stop. And so we prayed together, I, I think maybe four or five times that evening. And each time it would help shift things back to a calmer place where the relationship was prioritized above our individual uh, pride or hurts or whatever. And we ended up having a very productive conversation that evening. And not only that, I think that was the moment that really sealed the deal for me. That was where I really thought, okay, this is the woman I really want to marry if she'll have me. Why? Because I knew that she knew how to use the power of intention to take a productive step to de-escalate a conflict and, and that she didn't just let her heart rule her head and say whatever destructive poison came out, came up for her. Yeah. And I, I always love when you tell this story. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because we had the conversation we needed to for ending the dating relationship, but we ultimately had to have a conversation for coming back together and resolving why that happened in the first place. Yeah, letting go of the pain and misunderstandings and all of that that had led to our breaking up in the first place. Exactly. You know, and it's a lot like what Ruthie Renee Rye, um, the hypnotherapist that we interviewed recently on here on Lillipod, that she explained how in marrying her high school sweetheart recently, after more than 20 years apart, that they had to go back to their younger former selves and work through all of those emotions, all of those big feelings and figure out how to come together finally. Right. And, you know, of course our, ours wasn't so extreme. Our, ours was like a year, but still that's a year of right. both of us kind of having had to deal with those emotions on our own and finally being able to say, okay, and if focused gonna, on our own perspectives. Yeah. And it, be able to come together and, and share a common story that could lead to the altar, to, to, to the ultimate commitment, the sealing the deal, like you said. Right. Um, but yes, I would, I would definitely encourage everyone who has um, faith and um, believes in and tries to connect with God on a regular basis to include his power as part of de-escalating toxic interactions, because I don't believe that's how he wants us to communicate with each other here on earth. I think he wants us to be loving. He wants us to be able to work through hard things without being unkind. Right. And, and this is the way you do this, folks. You have processes and agreements for how you're going to fight fair, for lack of a better term. I want to ask a few tough questions, and obviously you've got to answer these in your own mind. Uh, not all of them will apply to you, but first of all, do you feel like your former partner was angry and impulsive? And if you did... Did you have any tools like this that you tried to use to avoid escalation? Or did you clam up? Or did you just get upset and fight back? I'm not saying you did those things, but, but ponder it. Are there things you could have done or could have tried to do to de-escalate a situation? Not to bring any shame on yourself. It's again, it's doing the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. But friends, this is, this is how you do it. You do it with very clear agreements about how you're going to handle those moments, those sensitive moments 
when a little of your trauma is coming up or your partner's trauma is coming up, how are you going to work with that? And I want to also mention that we can have clear agreements with ourselves and with our God apart from and aside from whatever relationship we're dealing with, meaning, okay, God, help me self-confront, help me de-escalate, help me to know all the skills I, you know, and, and practice all of this. I mean, I, I think it can take a lifetime to master, but if you're really intent on doing that, then no matter what the other person does, that's how you choose to show up. Right. And if they refuse to cooperate with the basic needs that you have to protect your own emotional well-being because you're responsible for that, like honoring a timeout or something like that, then you can choose to end the relationship. You can choose to call the cops. I mean, you can choose. There's all sorts of choices you can make that might be hard, but ultimately it's a choice that you can consider in the, your commitment to not have toxicity in your life. Right. You know, it occurs to me also, Kathy, that some of these agreements are going to be with ourselves and that will lead into the transference subject. But I want to use this particular example, a friend of, of ours who uh, is also a therapist and, an, and a very wise person uh, I asked, well, what, what should I do when Kathy's triggered, you know, and, and if I'm not, and this friend said, what would you do to comfort a little girl, like a four-year-old girl that was frightened? And so, and she said, basically do, do that with her. And, uh, Kathy talked earlier in this episode about how, you know, our, our wounded inner child can be, can be coming out. And that's true of all of us. It's not just her. It's not just me. It's, it's all of us. Well, and that can, um, instead of feeling upset about somebody being toxic and immature or stupid, or like you, we might think that's stupid, right? Right. Um, we can have compassion and instead. Right. And Dr. Greg Bear talked about when we interviewed him about how his wife would, uh, you know, if, if, if she, she could tell he was triggered, uh, she would say, okay, get over here, you know, take off your shoes. And she'd start giving him a foot rub. And what would you do for a child that's triggered, that's scared, you know, I know you've you would, come up and given me a hug sometimes. Right. I mean, and, and I've used the example before that one night I told Kathy I was in a really bad mood and I hadn't been that pleasant that evening. And she just started running her fingers through my hair. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how that little gesture really helped me to shift. And, uh, you know, what do we do when a baby cries? Well, we give it a pacifier or we put a bottle in its mouth. You know, we, or we hold it, we hold it and yeah. cuddle it. Uh, we don't sit there and lecture it about how it's wrong to feel bad right now. You know, <laughs> I know that would be absurd. And yet sometimes we're trying to do that to people who have, you know, are, are going back into their childhood state and, you know, when they're feeling scared. Right. So some of these agreements that we're going to make, not all, some of the agreements are going to be with our partner, but there's going to be some agreements that we'll make even with ourselves. Like I might say to myself, if I'm calm and Kathy's triggered, I am going to give her a hug and rub her back or, you know, it could be anything, but, but that's an agreement you make with yourself so that in the heat of the moment, if you feel the blood pressure start to rise, you know what to do to help make things better. Yeah. And then, you know, I guess that would be the first thing. If you're feeling calm, right, then you, you comfort the other person who's triggered. If you're both starting to kind of escalate, we de-escalate with let's slow down, let's breathe. And let's take turns. Right. And then the next step would be, 
we're both flooded or one of us is flooded enough that we need a timeout. Uh, and ultimately, because we're responsible for our own well-being, it, it's ideal if the person who whose heartbeat is racing faster, who is flooded, who is triggered, recognizes that in themselves and calls the timeout. But I think it's but don't okay wait for that. Right. It's okay, though, I think if you recognize that your partner has is now flooded and you're about to get flooded, if that if it continues, you can call the timeout, too. Right. But it doesn't mean like you're flooded. So we're going, you know, you, we don't point the fingers again, blame and shame. Neither of them useful concept con concepts. They're really just not helpful. Right. So if we can leave that out of it, that's where we can really, I think, take big strides towards getting toxic out of our lives. Right. I it think it seems like all toxic interaction have some kind of blame or shame in it. Right. Right. You know, the, the Gottmans talk about something uh, in terms of de-escalation where they say there comes a moment when you have to decide that you're turning toward each other or turning away. And so you have to be careful in calling timeouts. And that that is a, a strategy the Gottmans strongly advocate, but that it doesn't look like abandonment, which means don't hold somebody over the fire for an entire you know, weekend or something. No, work it out as soon as you possibly can. Uh, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, life is still happening. Schedules might not allow conversations to happen as soon as they could otherwise. But just, I think just a desire to work it out as quickly as possible and to be consistent about that helps that other person not to feel abandoned. Right. And, and the place we ultimately want to get, I think Kathy and I are progressing toward this, but is where you both feel secure that, all right, even if we disagree, we're going to be okay because we're us and we know how to do this now. Mm, I love it when you say that. <laughs> Sometimes I, I just love that reassurance. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, I think, I think that's ultimately where we want to get to is, is knowing that things are going to be okay. And then if we have to walk away from a a discussion for a minute, life can really be pretty normal. Kind of like Lily and Marshall on how I met oh, your mother. Yeah. They, they were to, good at that. They would just say pause and then they would go back to life as usual, you know, and and then they come back to the come back and unpause it later. But in the interim, they weren't even. Yeah. They, so if you've watched that, then we're, we're talking about the pause and the unpause. Right. <laughs> um, so let's wrap up this podcast uh, with a quick little discussion of our third point, which is to avoid transference. Jeff, can you tell us what transference is? Quite simply, where you transfer the emotion uh, that you have from a prior relationship to your new one. So it could be in the example I gave earlier about you've been out on a date with someone or two dates, and then you see them with someone else and you want to think they're a player or they're a cheater. Well, maybe you got cheated on in a previous relationship. And so you're super sensitive about uh, mm -hmm. somebody that's dating multiple people, even though they may be, be a totally faithful spouse once they've committed. So we're in danger of transference whenever we're feeling triggered. Right. Whenever we have trauma in our background, we are in danger of transference when we interpret something our partner does or are triggered by something our partner does that may or may not apply. I think we have so much trauma as mid-singles that we make mountains out of molehills uh, oftentimes. And Jeff has even told stories here in our book, in our writing, I mean, all in all sorts of ways about even the way in which he did that when we were dating. Oh, and that's just one example. You know, if I sat down and thought about it, I could give you a whole bunch of them. Right. And the, the one example that, you know, we'll just say quickly here is that he felt emotionally triggered when I canceled. Felt rejected. Them. Yeah. He felt rejected when we stayed up late hanging out with my kids when we weren't even supposed to be together. And then I wanted to cancel our breakfast the next morning because I was tired. Right. I got a five hour date with Kathy and three of that was with her kids instead of the one hour breakfast we were planning on. And yet I felt rejected. Right. And so, 
you had to kind of think through that while you were feeling that emotional turmoil of rejection and realize it's not, it's, it wasn't what you thought it meant. Right. And, and that is where we have to be able to self confront. And so we're kind of bringing this discussion full circle that uh, if we have done transference, if we are, uh, are, are doing that, well, chances are good that we need to self-confront. Now, we may not be able to do that in the moment. We may need to just go take a hot bath or something first and, and calm down. But ultimately, then we've got to be able to self-confront and be able to, to question our own thoughts. Just because I think this guy's a cheater because he's out with a different girl tonight, does that really mean it's true? It might not. And, you know, I, I have a coaching client who recently has had a relationship with, with someone. It's not exclusive, but it's, you know, at times seemed to be headed that way. And there are all these little, little things like this person has a son that's not active in the church and she worries about that. Or he doesn't seem that ambitious, you know, about his career, but they've never really talked about it. And so it's easy when you've never had the conversation to just horribleize about things, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, and here's the thing. As, uh, as we coach people, and this is something we can help with quite a bit, <clears throat> is to reason through these scenarios that sometimes we get really, really stuck in. Right. We get stuck in our own minds and how we see things based on our life experience, including our trauma. And sometimes we just need someone to help us see that there might be another way. We talk, we talk about trying on new thoughts, you know, just, just trying them, just seeing if they might be just as true and maybe more beneficial to us. Right. And make no mistake, the thing that you're getting stuck in, if you are stuck, is your interpretation. Mm, yeah. that, that is where you're stuck, is, is in seeing the world in a very black and white way about one thing. And, and that's what gets you stuck. What gets you unstuck is being willing, being willing and able to accept a different explanation. Mm, yeah. And, and so if anybody needs help with one-on-one -on -one coaching, just reach out, let us know, and we'd be happy to help you. Um, and it's something we really enjoy doing. We, we love seeing the miraculous process that can take place as we collaborate with our clients and <clears throat> they're willing to, to self-confront and work on their minds and and changing them, shifting them, and ultimately then creating a whole different trajectory of their life. Right. On this subject of transference, I just have a couple more quick thoughts. And one is, again, a lot of these agreements are with ourself. Why? Because, uh, the transference isn't about your partner. It's about a previous partner. And it's about how you're still interacting with those emotions in your own self. And so we have to be cognizant of when we're disrupted and know that we're being acted upon mm. by, uh, by transference. Well, and I and just want to mention, it's not only previous partners, but also family members, from our childhood, right. our family of origin, I know there were times in, you know, some of my relationships where I saw them responding to me as if I was one of their abusive parents. Right. Well, you know, there are families where there, where the the members of the family are are basically loving most of the time, but as soon as the hint of a disagreement comes up, they go straight to yelling. And if you're from a family like that and you had a marriage where you went straight to yelling as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as the um, disagreement arose, 
Well, it's like Maya Angelou says, when you know better, do better. Don't beat yourself up about it, but don't uh, become a victim of transference uh, either. See it for, be conscious and see it for what it is. Uh, and I think that's a, a huge thing. I want to maybe conclude my remarks in this episode by reiterating one of John Gottman's agreements that he has with himself. And it it is an agreement that pertains to his partner, but he holds himself accountable to it. And that is when Julie is in pain, the world stops and I listen. I like that one. And that's just a, a maxim he lives by. And we can make all kinds of agreements with ourselves like that, that can help to remove toxicity in our relationships. And add love to, to it as well. Right. And some of, those, some of those agreements need to be with our partners as well. But, but some of them, we can make, on our, make those decisions and agreements with our own self. Yeah. And, you know, his agreement with himself to show up and listen when she's hurting is so loving, so thoughtful and caring to be, to have that as his priority, if, if that's what's needed from him at that time. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. So thank you for listening, folks. Uh, this has been a, an enlightening discussion, I think, uh, for me and hopefully for all of you too. And remember, any time is a great time for more intentional love in your life. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to LilyPod and get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, give us a positive review. We want to reach as many mid-singles and later married couples as possible, so please share this podcast with those you love. To access fabulous free content like written articles and YouTube videos on LilyDube, and to learn about our book Intentional Courtship and Lily Coaching Services, visit loveinlateryears.com. <laughs>